Since the beginning of this year, the exponential rise of AI has been impacting learning and development in many ways. But how is our relationship with AI developing? What can educators be doing now to ride the AI wave? And how does an AI expert use AI to learn? To answer these questions and many more, Brooks Cole returns for the second part of this two-part interview, where we'll be diving down the rabbit hole to explore how AI can support learning and even further to explore what is learning and how can we be doing it better. So, can we please have another big round of applause for Brooks Cole. Welcome back, Brooks. Thank you. Now, after our first meeting, when we talked about AI, you basically enlightened us on what AI is, what it can do, what it can't do, and where it's going in the future. But one of the things that we didn't get around to, which is possibly the most important thing as far as the learnability show goes, is how AI is impacting or how it's going to impact on the way that we learn. Let's just dive in. How do you see AI changing the way that human beings learn? To be maybe a little cantankerous, I would say maybe it won't change how we learn. Maybe it will come into alignment with how we actually learn. My father, the fundamentalist Baptist geologist, very well-read fellow. He basically said in her survey of history, human nature has not changed, you know, since the year dot. So there's an advocacy that the way we learn is the way we've always learned. But I would assert that in folks like Bloom, Benjamin Bloom back in the day, when he was talking about this, the, the two sigma problem, he was referring to the idea that in, you know, Alexander, was schooled in the old school method of tutoring and mentorship. And back when, you know, to get an education of any kind was a great luxury. Every, you, the way you learned was at the knee of your father or of, of the master as an apprentice. You would learn basically experientially and cognitively and otherwise by an individual being right there with you, observing your learning progress as your as this knowledge and skill and mastery was imparted. And then in comes the Industrial Revolution and the Prussians and this idea of, you know, needing this fear, you know, Gustave Le Bohm and the, the crowd and the early 20th century fear of the crowd. And then in comes the, basically the factory schooling idea, which, I mean, I will just argue is really more about manufacturing consent and obedience than it, than it is about really instilling mastery in any particular subject. And that took us away from the model, which has basically worked throughout human history, which is if you want to teach a little human something, then you sit with them and you teach it to them and you observe what they like, what they get, what they don't get, where they're stuck. And that has been true through, you know, however many millions of years of hominid history. And then suddenly you get this factory idea that is 
absolutely 180 degrees opposed to the way we learn, in my opinion. Uh, some excel. I was one of those. I was valedictorian. I never got a B because I thought getting a B was going to be the scarlet letter. So I was like super, but I, w I looking back in my own educational exploration, I was much more about gaming the system to get the grades and the actual learning and mastery of whatever the subject was, that almost happened by accident. And what I'm saying here, I think what's going to change, and it's going to change, this is so exciting, is that everybody's going to get their own tutor. And actually a, a gaggle of them. And these tutors will have many, many advantages over a human tutor. One is they will be able to afford infinite patience and infinite time spent with the, the learner. And then these tutors will have unbelievable access to sensors, to data, to history about the native who's doing the learning, maybe for good or for ill. But I, I would like to keep this on the, on the positive side that the ability of these entities to sense, are you tired? Did you get enough sleep? Do you seem distracted? Or is your heart rate racing? Are you in the pocket of learnability physiologically, neurologically, or aren't you? And if you aren't, let's work on that first before we work on the impartation of learning. A human teacher doesn't have the ability to do. I mean, they, they can be empathic, of course, with an individual, but then to the exclusion of the class that they're supposed to be supervising. So I would ask you, you're the learnability guy. If you could pause it, as Bloom did, he basically said, we can move the needle of, of human mastery two orders of magnitude if we can just figure out how to provide a tutor at, to every single person. And voila, here we are, you know, 40 years later, and that is upon us. One of the factors that I'm not sure if AI can address is the one of how important motivation is for learning. If somebody doesn't want to do it, then they just don't want to do it. So for instance, I, I torture my kids regularly. For the listener who doesn't know, I have twins. They're now 13 years old. Every evening, I have this little strip of paper, which I call a, a pudding pass, which they, the kids have to, to do the, the challenge or answer the question in order to get their desserts. And recently, we've been focusing on AI. And so things, for instance, the last one that I, I got them to do was just to pick three things. Uh, they had to pick an animal, uh, a place, and an object, and ask ChatGPT, in this case, to, to give them a story that included those three things. And then I asked them to get ChatGB to modify that story in whatever way they chose. For instance, my daughter asked it to, to turn it into a horror story. And my son, curiously enough, asked it, the, the ChatGB to make it much shorter. But the interesting thing was the response of the, my two kids. My, my daughter was, was completely into it. She, you know, this is interesting. Da, 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 da. And my son was, this is a waste of time. I'm, and I, I'm quoting him here. I am never going to need chat GPT. Isn't that the common refrain? You know, we heard a lot of smart kids in school who just 
absolutely did not want to be in the machine say, I don't need this. I'm never going to use this. Why should I do it? I'm just going to sit back and take my F or my D or whatever. So Sal Khan addresses this in his, in his recent TED Talk on AI and basically says that, well, Khan Academy came from him mentoring his nephews. And he had to deal with this very issue of like, well, what are you actually interested in? So they've, they, Khan Academy, have uh, deliberately addressed this issue with an algorithm that tries to figure out what is the kid interested in so that everything they're there to learn can be contextualized in terms of what they are interested in. Now, if a, if a student is not interested in anything, well, is that is that possible that a human would be interested in nothing? If so, maybe we should move aside and, you know, have, leave more air for the rest of us. But I suspect that human tropism, like what is it that you are going after, attracted to? I think that's just a – unless you're suicidal and you just don't want to be here anymore, there's something that tickles your fancy – and I am enough of an optimist to believe that you should be able to ask questions and to dig and explore and cajole and gamify to figure out what's the most interesting thing to the native. And then everything else can be contextualized along that vector. It's very much a sort of a, a, a bell curve. You know, you know when, you, when you have a new product launch, you have the early... Uh, adopters, et cetera, et cetera. But in this case... I'm one of those. <laughs> I, I figured you were, actually. Yes, I gathered that. But rather than the early adopter, uh, late adopter bell curve, you have... I, I, I don't think that my son is not interested in anything. You, you get students that give you that impression. What I think it is, actually, is that it's more a case of wanting to rebel to be against the idea of AI rather than I'm just not interested in anything. Isn't that funny? And so you have students who actually want to be against the system. You have to, re to remember that this thing has ingested virtually every scientific study on human behavior, every fictional fictionalization of human behavior, every character, every biography. So it has it has read and presumably understood more than any living human will do about the way humans comport themselves, where their motivation comes from. So the the idea that they it might be able to be in a position to figure out how to motivate a an unmotivated person. There's literature around that there's people who have discussed it there's a lot obviously lots of parents like yourself have addressed this very situation and have done so in language somewhere where this thing is has explored the idea now but i also want to say i'm all for meritocracy like i believe that people should be rewarded for their hard work i believe everybody should be given a fair chance but the ones that really apply themselves they deserve the rewards that come to for hard work. I'm, you know, dear old dad, you, you know, was kind of a Calvinist, nose to the grindstone, but definitely, you know, you're earning your way into heaven by being diligent and, con and conscientious. And I inherited that.
and miserable, I think, as well, isn't it? Well, there was something about that because, yeah, if you're laughing, obviously it's the devil's work. But I want to get down on this uh, thing. This it's a it's a somewhat of an irritating thing to hear. Either I won't need to learn this, or it's dumb, it's mundane. The answers it provides are not interesting. This drives me crazy because it's so obviously it's a mind mirror. It really, really gives you exactly what, well, more than what you put in. It, it explodes with value and joy the more you put in and the more you learn about its subtlety, the more you get out the other end. For example, I, you know, we're going to be talking to Socrates in Socratic dialogue. You know, he's just going to be next to you. I, my, one of my personal favorites to looking forward to having by my side is Marcus Aurelius. But considering the Socratic dialogue aspect of, of um, mentoring, I asked Socrates if he would join us today. And um, I got a little bit of exploration. Let me just give the prompt. Just We don't have to go in, into it too deeply. But this is a typical prompt from Brooks. Act as Socrates. You are going to be accompanying me in, in a podcast discussing with the host the future of education in the face of artificial intelligence with the potential of providing an ever-patient, incredibly knowledgeable mentor for every single person. We want to explore the implications of this possibility, and considering the fact that this is how you conducted your own teaching, we thought that you would have a lot to share with our audience. There's nothing inspired necessarily about my technique. This thing is it's a conversational interface with with something that has studied the nature of conversation so instead of a lot of people treat it like it's just google they ask it a question they get an answer at the end that's not what it is it's so much more than that if you treat it like a really fascinating person you just met at a party and you've been told that it has boundless education in across like try to see if you can not get an, an an interesting line of reasoning out of it. The way you approach it is by telling it, first of all, what role you want it to take, then telling it who you are. Later on, we won't have to tell it who we are because it will know. Right now, in these early stages, it only remembers the conversation that it's in. It's about to change very quickly, but it you have to kind of set the scene but then once you do that, the more you give over the, the frame that it has something to impart, the more it imparts. And the more you educate it on the why of your inquiry, the better the results will be. And I would posit your, you know, your son is probably not doing that yet. Maybe he's not interested, but he's wrong about not needing to um, know how to interact with, with AI. That's probably the only thing he needs to learn going forward. Everything else, that's the fishing pole. Everything else is going to be fundamentally irrelevant. It's like, how do you use these tools to educate yourself for the rest of your life? That's going to be the human condition. Just to pick up on, on one small detail that you said, which I think is possibly the, the fundamental issue here, is the, the game change is that it's coming up with 
the questions. It's coming up with how to how to get to the right answer. And it's learning how to write those prompts, which is now becoming the key skill, isn't it? I find it interesting, this idea, because I'm I'm one of those. I'm a software architect, but I'm not a coder. So I'm, I, I, I know a lot about software technology and tools and, and programming methodologies, but I don't write a lick of code. Uh, we are now officially in an age where an education in the humanities is going to be more valuable than an education in some arcane computer coding language because the machine is going to be able to outcode a coder. But the ability to form a question from some, some basis in, in motivation and inquiry and exploration as an educated person, that's the new pot skill that is, I mean, prompt engineers, you probably have heard two to 300,000 a year in Silicon Valley, people are being paid to be excellent prompt engineers. And that's not about arcane loops and if, if then statements. And that's about thinking and about having an, an incredible curious mind. It's about being curious. And the incurious, I mean, I, hardly anything drives me more crazy than being incurious. How could you ever be bored in this day and age? It's hard work, isn't it, being curious? You actually have to think. Whereas if you just follow instructions and turn up and do what you're told and watch Netflix or, or play computer games, then you just sit there and, and receive you don't have to think. You've probably heard that the main problem with distraction is the furnace of the brain burning the glucose in difficult critical thinking. For example, I've, I've just read some headline about how much a chess master, how many calories a chess master burns during the course of a, of a match because the brain is like a furnace so when it's like phone rings, there's an email, it's like a knock at the door, the brain says, oh, a vacation. <laughs> you know, the moment you look at the television, suddenly that the furnace quiets down and, there's, and, and the effort is not there. But then there's the switching cost of getting back to what you were supposed to be paying attention to in the first place. So, but yes, so I would say... One of the things to keep in mind when you explore this realm of, prompt, say, prompt engineering or interacting with the, the model, what seems to be emerging is there's a couple of, of beautiful emergent ideas. One is that the, the more the machine, I'll just call it the machine for these, these purposes, the more you let it develop its answer procedurally, you let it do something and then you you say you basically frame was that what you wanted or not and if not maybe you need to give more information the the machine actually has for lack of a better word an internal process of reflection that it uses to arrive at its answers this is why thinking of it as an unthinking robot is so inept because it's actually cycling and reviewing and exploring. And if you can get it to cycle in the right direction, then it will develop 
better and better answers and go deeper and deeper and then recursively go back to what it's already given you or something that that you react to now with new information that oh you need this or this guidance so it's like a it's a sculpture that it develops over time with successive passes over the same surface it's not a one you know one shot then you're done that's just that's not where it gets where it has its richness you mentioned that coders who earn 200,000 are now having their their work impacted by AI and they're going to have to change to become prompters. Hold on, I didn't quite say that. So there's uh, there, one rule of thumb, I will say, Peter Diamandis recently said, everyone thinks AI is going to take their job. That's not what's going to happen. Someone who uses AI is going to take their job. So the, probably the most important thing and about the learning proposition as well, what this is it, that is upon us is not the demise of humanity. This is the augmentation of humanity. What the sublime possibility here is an, an alchemical marriage between two different types of intelligence, ours and theirs. And when you combine the two, the so-called human in the loop, you get incredible, you know, it's like the Kyoto Gardens. I think about, you know, people who think humans are a cancer on the planet have not been to the Kyoto Gardens or have not been to the Louvre, have not been to an incredible symphony or, or really, you know, of course, humans are capable of incredible stupidity and malevolence. Absolutely so. We are, in fact, of course, at least a lot of us is the chimpanzee. But then there's this other thing, this amazing skull cap that, you know, I've got my own ideas about where it came from. But um, when you introduce that additional intelligence and self-examination into the equation, you get the ability to create in participation with nature. And I would say, as weird as it sounds, there's a kind of natural quality to this intelligence. It's not necessary. I mean, it's modeled after human intelligence and it's modeled after human neural structure, but it isn't artificial. It's some kind of supernatural force that humans can dance with and produce something that is greater than the sum of the parts. Running with the idea that those who don't keep up to speed with AI are, could be losing their jobs to people who do. If you were an educator, what sort of things would you be doing to keep ahead and actually be, become one of these people who does know how to use AI? Well, the, such a deep question, really. I would the the thing that I have done. I mean, I'm not a teacher, but I I'm, but in a sense, I I think any anybody that interacts with people that has some wisdom to impart is a kind of educator. So people come to me for advice all the time. I don't know. I'm thick as two bricks, like the rest of them. But I've had some life experience, and one of the things that I've observed is that 
before you figure out what to do, you have to figure out why. Otherwise, any road will take you there, as they say. And so uh, before someone figures out, you know, whether they're going to learn machine learning or take a course in machine learning or something like that, my partner in the AI lab that we're forming in the UK, he has, he's a young, young, very skilled AI guy. His assertion is things, the technology is changing so quickly, it is not necessarily wise to bet on specific technologies. What's more important is to cultivate specific outcomes because there's going to be so many ways to get to a given outcome. And then the human experience that's the why. Why do you want to go where you want to go? And where is it that you want to go? And then we can talk about, is it an, uh, you know, a Tesla or is it a Volkswagen bus? Or what is it that's going to get you there? Now, if someone has a, an inkling, and I, I would just say, get in there and go to YouTube school because there are many millions more minutes of, of YouTube on every single thing that you would want to learn being created. In every minute that you watch YouTube, there's, you know, 10,000 minutes being uploaded. So you'll never get to the end of it. But in this realm, the human desire to help other people learn things is absolutely replete on YouTube. Like anything you could possibly want to know about or be interested in, there are people gushing about it on YouTube. It's a, just an astounding phenomenon. And a lot of them not necessarily making a, a lot of money out of it. They do it largely out of the spirit of generosity. So this is so true in every single nuance of AI. You can learn just how to be a better prompter. So my, my advocacy is play with it. And, and begin to experience what it's like to interact with an AI. And then you can figure out, do I want to learn more about this? Am I attracted to the image side or to the, the text side or to the, the, the other tools, the video, the music, everything? Figure And figure out why. And then you can study using YouTube University any possible thread. You don't have to dig for what's the newest tools because there's a thousand YouTubers who are telling you what the newest tools are every every week. Like 20 or 30 new tools a week are emerging. But to an extent, isn't that off-putting? You know, you have, because there is so much out there, you simply don't know where to start and therefore you don't start. You you'd get distracted by something shiny and end up looking at kittens all day. Yeah, don't do that. I mean, have a kitten, but don't watch other people's kittens. That's a waste of time. Of the, the videos on YouTube University, do you have any favorites that you would recommend? I do. So there's a guy, Matt, Matt Wolf, uh, has the best search engine for AI tools that's called, I think I might have mentioned it last episode, futuretools.io. And he has a weekly podcast that goes over his favorites. So he has a search engine that finds all of them. And then he tells you which ones he personally likes and ha and then the ones he really likes, he puts in his show every, every week. And I think on Friday he does a special one. There's another kid I really love. He calls himself Matt Vid uh, 
Matvid Pro. He's maybe like 18 or 19 years old or something and does the podcast out of his parents' basement, I'm sure. And he's so enthusiastic about every incrementally new thing that's emerging. And he's very well-educated in it. And his enthusiasm alone, I just love. And then the thing is, uh, you can say, you know, I've, I've taken to task YouTube for the way it's kind of pushing establishment stuff at you with its algorithm. But in this case, if you basically are alerting YouTube to the idea that you're interested in AI stuff and in all its nuances, like I, I, I'm interested in MidJourney because it's my favorite image generator. If you start looking for MidJourney stuff in the search engine and you start watching it, it's amazing. It's like all the gophers stick their heads up and it starts coming at you. And then it will just continually offer up to you new stuff to watch that's in the same vein. It's actually quite encouraging. And I, I do search. Also, the other thing I would advocate to people is what's changed my life about consuming content online that I want to keep track of is Notion. So Notion is a sort of a note-taking app would be, but it's really what it is, is, is kind of like a second brain holder. It's much more than bookmark. It's a place for you to keep all the stuff that you consume that you're interested in and in an organized way. And every single YouTube that has any interest for me, even if I don't have time to watch the whole thing, I capture it. I capture the notes of it, in some cases the transcription of it, into Notion. And I've built up this encyclopedia of Brooks that is every conceivable thing I'm interested in, all sort of organized, and I have a place for everything so that, you know, if I have two moments to rub together, I look through this encyclopedia and say, ooh, I think I want to go down this road. So that actually brings me on to my next question with, with you giving this, uh, this example of Notion, is how do you use AI to learn? Oh, my God. So, um, so it depends on my mode. There are times when I am not working. I'm, I'm a Capricorn, so I kind of like work all the time. But sometimes when I'm, I, I do like some people talk about you, you procrastinate on one thing by doing something else that you're supposed to do, just not now. And what I have cultivated the ability to do is to take note when my brain throws, I call it skeet, it throws up this thing of like, oh, why is this memory of that book I read in, like I read Dune when I was, I don't know, maybe I don't know, in, my, in my early 20s or something like that. And it was like such a big, or Snow Crash, or there was this, or Neuromancer. There was this period that I was really into cyberpunk and into sci-fi. I didn't read it when I was a teen. And then there are these ideas that would, would just emerge. Or I uh, went to see a Tibetan Lama in Colorado who was talking about firewalking. And I, that suddenly, okay, that, I was like, okay, let's go back and let's take, let's remember that little Fabergé egg about firewalking and Tibetan thought and, and ask ChatGPT what it knows about the subject. So I say, 
if you think back across the course of your life at things that were interesting, that, that sort of emerged for you and then submerged again in the quicksand because you had other things to do, I say those things are just, those Fabergé eggs are just buried in their hiding places waiting to be summoned again. And now we have the ability to summon them. And all you need is a spark. Like, oh yeah, what was that, you know, that moment in a movie? What was that country that somebody was mentioning? What was that historical figure? Whatever it was in the, in the old days, maybe Google it and then you get a quick answer and then you're done. And that, I would say that makes the spark go out. With ChatGPT, this is the, the genetic root of an entire conversation, exploration. It can go on forever. This difference that, that in one case, the, um, the seed is alive and is ready to germinate. And in another case, it's just kind of dead matter. So it's like whatever it is that you're interested in, you can engage in this kind of self-inquiry to remember, A, that you were interested in it, B, why you were interested in it, and then to realize that the way this stuff works is that it's like, it, it's like mycelia. If you have a little fragment of it, it can begin to grow anything from that fragment. Anything. That's how it works. It's like, they, they sort of minimize it by saying it's like autocomplete, but it's much more uh, subtle and nuanced and extraordinary than that. It is like you, you can begin anywhere, any when, any what. All you need is a, a marker in the Akashic record of human knowledge, and you then you put that in water by asking it a question, and you can start by saying, you, I, I just, because I don't want to assume, I will ask ChatGPT, do you know this book? If it's a recent book, you have to use a version of ChatGPT that's connected to the internet. If it's been written later than 2021, then it has, you have to use a plugin that's connected to the internet or you have to use its own innate Bing connection. But then you say, yes, I know it. And then it'll tell you a lot about it. And then you say, okay, give me the, the, the top 10 concepts from the book. There's your Cliff's Notes. Now let's take that, those 10 seeds and do something with that. And then you can, if you're curious, you can be entertained all afternoon just with the one thread. When you say that ChatGPT has, has read or has access to, to all of this literature, how does it get access does somebody take what is intellectual property and just give it to ChatGPT? Well, isn't this what Google's been doing for 20 years? Anything that is accessible and online, and not everything is, there is the, the dark web and there is some material. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure when it comes to books, the content of which are not necessarily Googleable per se, you can't get a PDF of the content of the book how it gets access to that information is a question i don't know but the the method is involved in the training where in the early stages of training the model they have this army of data scientists that are going out like shoveling coal into the furnace they go out and they find corpuses of all kinds including these more arcane things like scientific 
papers and so forth that are not necessary that that are behind firewalls and they get subscriptions and they uh, they absorb this information and then it goes in there and it then begins to knit during that process where having exposed it to a ton of this stuff it then goes about its black so-called black box work where it begins to knit this stuff together in ways that even the creators cannot completely understand what it's doing. As you're, you're a Star Trek fan, I'm going to use this, uh, an example from, from Star Trek to, to put my next question. Um, if our listener has uh, seen the film The Wrath of Khan, the goodies and the baddies are, are chasing each other through this uh, electromagnetic storm, um, which we won't go into the science of that, but anyway. And they, they're basically trying to find each other in the dark, the two spaceships. And I think it was, it's Mr. Spock that leans over to Captain Kirk and says, we've analysed how Khan, who's captaining the other ship, is thinking, and he's trapped in a two-dimensional manner of behaviour. And we could use the three dimensions to actually get our advantage on him. Now, the reason I mention this is because when we're talking about, for instance, ChatGPT, and we're asking questions or using ChatGPT by writing prompts, is it, well, I, I think it's, it's possible that we get trapped into a certain way of thinking and find it difficult to break out of how to use these tools. Have you got any experience like that and any suggestions of how to deal with it? It's such a beautiful question because I it speaks to my own work, actually, you know, since I was a young man looking at consciousness as a, a dimensional construct, basically as a geometry, the geometry of meaning. And the, the, the secret is the n-dimensional. So we're going into a, a world, and, and I, we, I use the term holo, our, the company's called holo, and I've used this, uh, this holo construct because it's the idea that everything is in fact connected to everything else, and that if with any given nugget, you have an infinite number of directions in which you can then associate or, or travel from that one place. So ChatGPT and GPT-4, really, the, the secret to not getting trapped in dimensionality, like you remember Flatland. In Flatland, a square is a safe. You can put your valuables in there and no one, but in three dimensions, someone can just like pull the thing out of the safe because it has no back and it has no front. If you keep going, you begin to understand where, you know, where this is going, where at it, any object of focus, you can basically meta out. I would say this is what happened to me when I was in my dorm room at university. I, I realized that I was in the flat land of a single bubble, a single reality bubble. I'm in a dorm room. I'm having a, a conversation with this guy. Yeah, I might have had a bong hit or whatever it was. Now, all of a sudden, I'm outside that reality bubble and I'm looking at all the other reality bubbles, all the other students, all the other people in my city, in my state, 
all the other people who have been across this place in time, all of a sudden the single reality that you have or the single subject that you're focusing on is not fixed, but it's actually a pivot, a point of pivoting. So you can do this with language, with ChatGPT. You can take something, you can have it, ask it a question, have it spit out a recommendation or a characterization. Then you can have it change its identity. You can say, now you are a world expert critic on the very domain you have just been expounding on. Pick apart what, what you've just said and find the holes in it. And it will go dutifully, it will proceed to debate itself and produce incredibly incisive contrary points to what it just said. And then you can have it pivot again and have it fix the things that it identified itself by being a different entity, a different perspective. It's elastic. And this is why I'm pointing out this idea that if you do this procedurally, you do something and then you do something different and then you do something different again, then you take all of the, the products of the different perspectives and you combine them, merge them, multiply them, you know, cross-pollinate them. So if you think in terms of these uh, sort of moves, almost like chess moves, you get an absolutely infinite number of permutations of ways of looking at something, which is this multi-perspectival view, that is to me the real seed of wisdom. If you're stuck in your own perspective, it doesn't matter how well studied it is. If you're obstinate and unable to put yourself in the shoes of your adversary, you're not actually a masterful thinker. You know, in, in really good educations, they teach you how to debate your own position and win and then go back. And that's what ChatGPT will do this. It'll go as deep as you like. It'll pivot to any perspective, it, it knows time, space, the macrocosm, the microcosm, the infocosm, the mythocosm. It knows all the cosms. But you have, to, you have to ask it. You have to invite it to do so. Otherwise, it's not going to do it. And by the way, I just want to insert a little commercial here because, you know, I know that Google is trying real hard and they've had a lot of extremely gifted AI scientists and so forth working. But I don't know if anybody's tried BARD. But if, when you compare Bard to ChatGPT, it's a completely different personality, and it's not a likable entity. ChatGPT, you ask it a simple question, and then it gushes detail and offers up all these perspectives and gives you ideas to follow on. I think maybe because it was, it's, it's like, like Google, it's penurious. You ask it a question and then it just gives you this really sort of short and generally unsatisfying answer. And then it, and it'll just sit there like inert. It's like pulling teeth to get something out of it. Whereas ChatGPT is like a fountain. It's a fountain of, of value in my perspective. I'm so, I hope I'm not pissing off some Google fanatics out there, but. Uh, it's my experience so far. Maybe they'll change. Maybe that will change. But so far, if it's a like mispersonality gets awarded to ChatGPT, not to Google. You mentioned about how you can use ChatGPT to debate issues and generate new ideas. One of the little tricks that I was 
quite pleased to discover with ChatGPT is you can actually ask it to test you on your own knowledge. You can get it to ask you the questions. So you actually have to do the ChatGPT stuff and write the answers and it will critic well, uh, it will evaluate and criticize your answers to let you know how well you've done. That is one of the biggest bit flips that your listeners can do when they're playing with this is to turn the tables and, and ask it to ask you questions. And you can ask it when you're asking it something, you can say, ask me questions until I'm convinced that you know what I want you to talk about. And then you can ask it a question and it will have compiled much more information to go on than in your initial prompt. But let me point out that you know, we're at such an early stage of this. In a year's time, the idea that it's asking you questions will just be baked in the cake. The fact that it's not actually being that proactive now is just, a, it's a matter of its, its embryonic progress so far. But in a year's time, we will be having these and expecting these free-flowing conversations with these agents of all kinds. And most of them will be occurring in audible speech, not in typewriter, you know, in, in typing. That'll be a thing of the past pretty soon here. You've mentioned holo. Yeah, holo as in holographic. Yeah, holos, the Greek, the whole. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that project is? Certainly. I'm, I think I mentioned um, in our previous episode a little bit, but when I was in college, was really interested in consciousness. I was meditating, although I hadn't taken any meditation classes, but I was reading about Buddhism and I was reading Zen stories, etc. And I, I was reading Kant and Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and the, the Dancing Wu Li Masters and, uh, you know, all that stuff. And I was really interested in what consciousness actually was. And because I was a young curious college student I was interested in how to augment my consciousness and I had a kind of Paul on the road to Damascus kind of aha moment that consciousness had a geometry that consciousness was basically a kind of membrane because you know I noticed that everywhere you go there you are you look all around whether you are you are perceiving or imagining or uh, you're or watching a movie or listening to a ripping good story or in some entheogenic ecstasy or in a dream or engaged in a memory. Whatever it is that you're doing with your brain, these states all have the same kind of topology, if you will. You're in the middle of a bubble. And then in that bubble, there's like the near... What is it that you're focusing on and this sort of mid-distance of what is the context that surrounds the thing that you're focusing on? I just began to explore this idea that there was a, a kind of geometry of meaning. And then I ran across a book called The Geometry of Meaning by Arthur M. Young, who is the guy who invented the helicopter. Most people don't know about Arthur, but he was, in effect, my intellectual godfather. And I explored this idea that th this could give rise to understanding how we use our minds and how we can use them better and how we can expand our consciousness, which I 
as a young man, I believed that most of the people around me were idiots, like we often do, and that, you know, I knew better, and that, you know, you old, old folks have made a mess of the world, and we it's up to us young ones to kind of set things right, and I thought, we need to raise consciousness in order to save this planet. And that had to do with increasing the the clarity and lucidity and reach of this bubble. How much can you stuff into the bubble? So I actually developed a, a, a set of algorithms and, and even wrote patents, was awarded some patents in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, and have kept going. And it turns out that what I was working on is the perfect segue to artificial or augmented intelligence. Why? Because this is about how this technology can augment our intention and our awareness and our, our quest for understanding and mastery. And right now, we're just like in the old days, I'm old enough to remember when computers were a black screen with green type. And there was no such thing as a mouse. And then suddenly there was a mouse, and now you could point at things and thank God, God to Xerox Park and Steve Jobs and all of that stuff. But now Apple has just described this headset that's coming next year in which you look at what you want, what you're interested in, and it tracks your eyeballs. And then you just click your fingers together, and that's a tap, that's a click to indicate that the thing you're focusing on with your eyes is the thing you want to pursue. If you keep going, where we're going here is, is about our consciousness being augmented by the machine's capabilities. The machine is being built, as all of these machines, all, a telescope, a microscope, a speaker, a, a microphone, all these technologies are augmentative of human capabilities. And this technology is augmentative of human awareness, consciousness, knowledge. You know, that's, that's where we're going. So I've been, in effect, preparing for this moment for 40 years, wandering in the desert like Moses. And, and now is the time. Now is the time, I'm afraid, for us to be drawing this interview to an end. At the end of the last recording that we had, you, you gave your important takeaway. So rather than asking you for another takeaway, I'm going to ask you, uh, as far as the listener is concerned, if you could give them a challenge. If you say, right, we've, we've spent almost an hour talking about learning and artificial intelligence. What challenge would you like to give the listener to push ahead with this? Just to keep it really simple. I would say there's a series of aha moments in how you can better your prompt engineering or your 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 interaction with ChatGPT. If you don't know that you can tell it to be something in order to get a better answer, do that. If you know that, but you didn't know that you can get it to ask you questions until it finally gets you convinced it has enough information then do that. If you haven't had it debate itself in order to produce a better and better result, do that. If So it's, it's like a, an increasing number of ways that you can uh, make it more interesting than you've made it so far. I would say um, 
So the gauntlet is whatever you think it can do, explore something it can do even more mind-blowing than where you are right now because it's there. It's like Russian dolls. So, for example, if you're just using it to answer questions, use it to create something. If you've used it to create something, use it to create something that you can then publish. If you've done that, use it to create something that can advertise and uh, and draw attention to the things that you've published. If you haven't created it, a, a product that you can sell, do that because you can. You can create the product it can sell. Then you can create the marketing program to sell the product. Then you can create the business plan to create a business out of making a bunch of those things. You can, and then once you, then you can leave your dead end job and you can actually become a chat GPT entrepreneur. And once you're doing that, then become a chat GPT millionaire, you know, just so I would say do the ratchet and just keep upping yourself. And because just know this is endless. What we're on the cusp of has no boundary. The boundary is is at, at the very edge of the human imagination, and nobody has gotten to the end of that. We could give this episode the subtitle of How to Become a ChatGPT Millionaire. I have to say, of all the uses that this incredible technology is being put to, that's the most mundane. I'm sure a lot it gets a lot of clicks and there's if you want to know that there's just google that and there you'll get tens of thousands of people who are not necessarily millionaires telling you how to become a, a millionaire. I would say that to really wrap it up it's like use it to go beyond what you think is possible for yourself because and I'm not deifying it I'm just saying that it knows more about human nature than you do. And very soon it will know about more about your nature than you do. Use it as a catalyst for personal growth and it will not disappoint you. Brooks, thank you very much. It's a pleasure talking to you and I wish you all the very best. What a pleasure and a genuine honor to be on your show. Take care now. Thank you for listening to this episode right to the end. If you are at all interested in finding out more about what I do with learnability, with learning clubs, or how I can help grow the learning culture of your organization, then please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on my website, iangibbs.me. The details are in the show notes. Thank you very much. Have a great day and keep learning.